Welcome to Cup of Cubby Blue, your spring training home for Cubs news, updates, and banter. We're the official podcast of Bleed Cubby Blue, and you can find us by searching for Bleed Cubby Blue wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sarah Sanchez. I write about baseball for Bleed Cubby Blue, and I'm a little sad because Andy isn't with us today. If you follow her on Twitter, you know that she lost her father earlier this week, and my heart is just broken for her. She's talked on this show a lot about how much her dad means to her and how she came to baseball and Andy. We just are all so sad for you, um, and I am thinking of you and love you. Um, I say we because I'm excited that we're joined by a special guest who filled in today um, to talk to us about stats and the Cubs' upcoming season. And so join me in welcoming to Cup of Cubby Blue for the first time from Bleacher Nation and outside the Ivy, Michael Sarami. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good, Michael. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, no, I mean, we were, <clears throat> we've been talking about getting together to do this for a while since uh, at least CubsCon and probably long before that. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to finally be here. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you follow Michael's work, you know that he is like super well-versed in stats and projections and all that jazz. And what better time to look into that as we're getting new numbers, projection systems are sort of getting finalized and the Cubs are having their first workouts down in Arizona. So we can just jump right into this. Um, do you want to start with Fangraphs stuff or Pakoda stuff, Michael? Your pick. Uh, let's do Fangraphs. That's that's. I wrote an article on it recently, so I'm a little bit better versed in in what they had um, individually, at least um, from the top. Well, cool. uh, I just did an article on that too, so I think we'll have a lot to say. Um, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> if you've read my article or Michael's article, uh, Fangraphs kind of likes the Cubs. I mean, they're not in love with them. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> it's not like. They think the Cubs are the team from 2016, but they do see the Cubs as the strongest team in the division right now with probably some weaker starting pitching and definitely a weaker bullpen than the rest of the division. Um, Just overall as a team, what do you think about Fangraph's look at the Cubs? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's. overall, it was probably a little bit rosier of a picture than I was expecting, Um, but just I think that that sort of speaks a lot towards where our expectations and and the general narrative around the team has drifted because you look at the rotation specifically, and that's probably the area of the biggest concern for me to start. Um, you know, they kind of see you Darvish and Kyle Hendricks being probably more than serviceable, both being like number two pitchers. And, you know, I don't think that this is an exact science but if you don't have a true ace which i think darvish or hendrix can both be um having two legitimate like surefire number twos is about as close as you can get and as much as you can hope for the question however is whether or not the back end of the rotation uh, which is currently being projected to be somewhere between tyler chatwood and alec mills is going to deliver anything and if john lester will stay healthy enough throughout the year to even reach his two war projection and i don't know if that's really going to be the case i'm i'm pretty concerned about John Lester this year not because I don't think he's going to be good but I just think he's going to be more worn down and he's going to be older and his re- rehab times are going to take longer and ultimately he's just you know he's he's already started to sort of age into his um latter years gracefully but it's it's going to be a constant grind and I'm just I, I'm nervous about facing any sense of this uh the Cubs rotational strength and thus the team strength on Lester and I think that Van Graffs does yeah, let's talk about Lester. There's a lot there that I want to talk about because I have some thoughts on Darvish and Hendricks too. But 
you know, we all knew that the latter years of this Lester contract were going to be a little bit of a struggle. He's, um, is he 34, 35? I don't I, have I, that in front of No, me. he's, he's 36 now. Oh yeah. Okay. So he's, you know, he's aging in to what we generally think of as a pitcher's decline, as you were saying, um, last year, he kind of seemed to get by on just a lot of grit and craftiness. There were times where his stuff just didn't look great. And I and I love John Lester. I think he's outstanding. But he gets, you know, he can get hit really hard when his stuff isn't playing because there's such a fine line between him being, you know, an, like ace level, I'm only giving up two hits today, and him just getting knocked around. And I feel like those games where he gets knocked around are happening a lot more often. I two war from Lester would be great. I am not sure we're going to get two war from Lester. Two yeah, that, from that's Lester. that's exactly my you know that's exactly my point. I'm I'm just concerned that there's no doubt in my mind. And I, I say this all the time. Anytime you have a guy like John Lester, a former ace, whenever the Cubs are facing a guy like that, no matter how old or how past their prime or how worn down they are, they always have the potential to just for that day, feel it again. And that's why having Lester on the team is still valuable and still useful because there could be stretches of time where he it does look like himself, but overall, I mean, we already saw the decline probably a year and a half ago. And then for most of last season, he just wasn't that guy anymore. And, you know, Zips is projecting a 4.38 ERA over 150 innings. It's like, you know, we're starting to get into a scenario where even that is looking like it would be promising. And I, and I don't know if it's going to be that good. And that's a conservative estimate. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty concerned about the rotation in general. I'm hopeful that someone like Tyler Chatwood or Alec Mills can sort of um, surprise and take over the role of the third, fourth starter and allow Lester to sort of just more naturally slide into the back of the rotation where the expectations and the needs out of him aren't as strong. And that way, you know, he can continue to contribute, but it's not like the Cubs will be relying on him. And I think a lot of players, a lot of teams still see him as that guy. I mean, it was MLB.com. It was like yesterday. They're ranking all of the aces, quote unquote, from each team. And they had John Lester as the Cubs ace. And it's that's just an out-of-date reference. It's not, it's not the case anymore, you know. He's probably the fourth best starting pitcher. And that's only because we only know four of the starting pitchers right now. So, like, I, you know, it's it's nerve-wracking. It's definitely nerve-wracking. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, I was just about to say, one of the things that Fangraphs and Pakoda seem to agree on, both of them pegged the Cubs as right now as right around an 84-85 win team. You and I have talked before about ways they could exceed that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in this show, or the fact that if they don't look like they're going to hit that, they're not going to be an 84 or 85 win team because they're going to sell. <laughs> so right. it's like the odds that the Cubs are going to finish right around 500 seem kind of small to me. I actually pretty firmly believe that that is a picture that is true. If Lester is like the fourth best pitcher on the team, I, I think that you need a better year from Kyle Hendricks, who we'll talk about in a second projections always seem to hate him. It's just unfair. Uh, Kyle Hendricks, you Darvish, and probably Jose Quintana all need to do better than John Lester in this season for the Cubs to hit that like over 500 actually contending projection. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, you absolutely need you Darvish to be the guy he was in the second half last year, and then you need Kyle Hendricks to continue uh, being consistent. But I, I actually, I think both of those cases are uh, likely or at least probable. I don't think you Darvish is necessarily going to be that like, you know, zero walks and however many innings pinched when he was on that insane streak. Awesome. But there's no doubt in my mind that if he feels good, that he can't be that 
top of the rotation arm that we know he is. I mean, we, we as Cubs fans have just gotten the timing of so many of these deals it, it has thrown so much of it, so many of us off in that Darvish's last year before coming to the Cubs was fantastic. And then he just got hurt that year and he was hurt for the whole year. And yeah, he started off slow last season, but then he was exactly the guy who we thought he was again. So I was, I was pretty happy to see, um, I think when I was looking at, I think it was fan graphs, not Dakota Darvish's projections specifically had something along the lines of his best, uh, yeah, yeah. Let me see. I think I have it here. his best strikeout. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they were projecting a 29.8% strikeout rate and a 7.7% walk rate over the course of the whole year, which is basically right in line with his, him at his very best in Texas. And like, if he's around a 30% strikeout rate with a sub 8% walk rate for a whole season, he's going to dominate. No one can touch him. Uh, they won't make enough good contact against him when they are making contact, and that's infrequent. So, yeah, I'm I'm excited about Darvish, and I, it's I never am going to bet against Kyle Hendricks either. It's just it's the depth behind them that really terrifies me. Yeah, the back to you, Darvish, for one second. I agree with you that the projections seem to seem optimistic that he can have one of his better seasons. One of the things that you know I keep thinking about with you, Darvish, particularly given all the stuff going on with science stealing, the science stealing scandal, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Um, he's got he had not only the injury, but he had sort of the like mental head trip of having to deal with the Astros just pummeling him in that 2017 World Series. And if you remember when he came over to Chicago, the deal was less than people thought it would be. Part of that was probably the free agent market. Part of that was probably the World Series performance. There were all these concerns that he was tipping pitches, that he was hurt, that he was this, that he was that. I mean, I can't even imagine how off that put him for the first part of his contract with the Cubs. Both the injury and the mental space, just like terrible situation. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, there's no doubt that he got less money than he probably would have gotten. And and it's, it's... I, I, anyone that's, you know, heard me on other podcasts or writing, I, I so strongly try to avoid talking about the mental side of the game for so many players, because although it is real in some version of uh, their reality, it's almost always impossible, in my opinion, to really see what's going on. Some guys might seem like they're, you know, not uh, having as much confidence in themselves as they should, but are fine. And some guys put on a good game face, but are actually, you know, have the yips inside. But with that said, I think it's pretty obvious to anyone that was paying attention that not only the way the 2017 season ended for him, but also the way the entire offseason and early parts of 2018 played out for you, Darvish, affected him off the field and then on the field in his head when he was on the mound. And it's unfortunate because it's it's unfair um, and it's often, you know, it's 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 opaque to us to say, oh, he does, he just doesn't have it, or he, you know, he's he's lost his mojo or whatever. But it's like, it's happening. It's real. You could see it. You could see the defeated, um, how defeated he was on the mound. I was there in South Bend when he walked back off after one inning when he was making his final attempt to come back. Oh. His head was down. It was it was a sad moment. He was he was bummed, and you could tell. So, you know, to see him come back last year, be healthy, and then as soon as he started getting a little bit of momentum, turned it up a whole nother notch. Well, yeah, I could see how that played a role. And it's 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 at least fair to say that with increased confidence that came with the end of last season, I'm expecting to see a, a, a good U Darvish right out of the gate so long as he's physically healthy. Well, and I think that U Darvish has told us as much like through some of his tweets and some of his interviews that he was having a hard time figuring out what had happened in that world series. So I don't think that's speculation. I think he's told mm-hmm. us that he had a rough time 
No, it's yeah, you're right. I forgot about that. I mean, he even said, I think, or maybe it was even his wife that had said on Twitter yeah. something along the lines that he had become a better person after having gone through that because of how tough it was for him at the time. He sort of realized he got gained a little bit of perspective. So that sort of inherently confirms that he was going through a rough time then. So yeah, you're right. It, it definitely is out there. Yeah. Um, P.S. If you are not following E. Darvish on Twitter, one of the best follows in all of baseball. And if you're a Cubs fan listening to this podcast, you absolutely need to be following E. Darvish on Twitter. So get on that. Um, Kyle Hendricks. So let's I want to talk about Kyle Hendricks and projections for a second here, just because I think it's worth noting that projection systems don't like him. (laughs) They don't think Mm -hmm. his stuff should play. They don't think he should be able to get guys out the way he does. And it seems like every year I'm sitting here at about this time and the projection systems think Kyle Hendricks is going to fall back and he's going to be like a 2.5-ish war player. And then he comes in and he puts up four war and he just gets guys guys out every year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like the story is old as time with him. It's a lesson that people just routinely forget to to relearn or something. Kyle Hendricks is good at baseball. He's a good pitcher. He literally has always been a good pitcher. Um, anytime he's healthy and on the field, he's one of the best guys out there. It's just that he doesn't, not only does he not have the stuff that we traditionally associate with, you know, talented arms, it's even more highlighted in an era when people are throwing as hard as ever. So he's like, he's like, you know, a black sheep in at the white sheep convention. You know, it's, it's not even, it's, it stands out even more because of the way people are trending towards uh, big giant fastballs and hard breaking sliders and a ton of strikeouts you know that's just not his game and it, that's fine because it works for him and I know that it doesn't work for everyone but at a certain point you think these projection systems which I mean I understand that they're objective but you think that the, the objectivity of the numbers over this this long of a career it's already at you know five and a half years would manifest themselves in better projections but <laughs> he still looks they, they look all right but like I would have projected something even better frankly well, and you know what's funny about that? I don't. I can't remember who it was now. I think it was last season, and I want to say it was a baseball prospectus person. Um, but as the projections came out, they're like, wow, this, this system really doesn't like Kyle Hendricks. And I want to be like every year, like clockwork. Mm-hmm. System doesn't like Kyle Hendricks. Y'all do not appreciate and, and look, I get it. You have to build an algorithm for a state, like the standard system, and then you have to run it like 10,000 times or however you get your, your projections for all of this stuff, which is Frankly, like there are slight variations between how Pangraphs does it, how Pocota does it, and how like 538 does it. But that's the basic model, right? Like you input a bunch of data, including things like previous year's performances and how many innings they picked or whatever. And then you run these simulations over and over and over again. And this is what it spits out most of the time. And you're like, that's my number. Um, And I get it. Kyle Hendricks is an outlier. So he's not, he is constantly overperforming that, but it feels like you should be able to build in that for at least him, like the Kyle Hendricks variable or something. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I, I love that. It should be a little trademark thing. I mean, like, it's okay. Let's be fair to be fair. They're projecting a 118 ERA plus, which means 18% better than league average. Let me see what last year, he had 20, he was 21% better and overall in his career is 23% better. So yeah, you know, it is kind of like, why are you just assuming this guy who's 29 just turned 30 is going to drop off by five or 10%. I I don't see it, especially because you know, it's not like he relies on a high fastball velocity to get by. So the, the, the age, the way he ages should be a little bit easier to continue to be successful so yeah i agree they need this sort of they need the kyle hendricks um uh 
what what's a good word for it? Uh, well i mean what was the inclusion uh, last year 18 months ago or so they came out with that variable that was like the best control in baseball and eno saris had this piece on it in the athletic and shockingly like it was called command that's what it was called Mm, yeah the pitcher with the best command in all of baseball kyle hendricks it was like not shocked yeah (laughs) no i mean precision artist the only time i've seen him not have the command that he's um been touted to have is literally his debut i remember the only thing we really knew about him before he came up was like yeah this guy doesn't throw hard but he puts the ball exactly where he wants to and i and i think he was pitching against the reds that day um and he walked with like four guys in that first outing and i was like what the hell this guy's supposed to be like you know the next coming of greg maddox and then you know what for the next uh 100 60 starts he's made since then he has been like he's <laughs> that's him you know he has command he has control and he uses his pitches more effectively than maybe or let's say he uses his stuff more effectively than maybe any other pitcher can because he has to he has to and that's how he makes his living out here uh, let's talk about position players for a second so i will just be really clear uh projection systems tend to not like two of my favorite players and so when you look at these things and you see that the projections always seem to call for a regression for Wilson Contreras and Javier Baez. Just like hold your rage. <laughs> there are certain things they don't like about them, but I'm curious. I know you've written particularly about Wilson and Javi and fan graphs. Tell me a little bit more what's happening with those projections and why that is the case. So I'm, I'm, man, it, it's, it's so hard to say. So Javier Baez in particular, Wilson Contreras, I don't know what they're talking about. He's going to hit better than that. Every time he's on the field, he does. He's pretty, pretty consistent, pretty consistently above average. I think they're just being too conservative in nature and probably factoring in the fact that he gets injured every year. And maybe one of those times, like say Chris Bryant, you know, the injury affects his performance even after he comes back. I'm not otherwise certain why he wouldn't be projected higher. I know he's a catcher. I know he's getting older. But the guy he's twenty-seven, though. Like, I, and and what we're talking about here, just so people, uh, if you're not looking at the numbers right in front of you, you know, Wilson Contreras, since he came up in 2016, he's had a WRC plus, which sort of like ERA plus that we were just talking about is baselined off 100, so you can kind of gauge how much better that player is at creating runs than the average player. WRC plus 126, 122, 100. That was the 2018 season with the slump. 127 projection 107 <laughs> i'm like yeah, how do you go from consistently 27 22 better to seven percent better because reasons i'm just like i don't understand it <laughs> yeah i really don't and it's so i i always like to say that like okay it's important to look at projections for what they are it's important to let them tell you and show you where your blind spots spots are and possibly there's something we're missing i don't see it though i think wilson Contreras. Um, was is going to rake, and I think he was raking uh, like crazy last year until he got hurt again. Like that was looking like he was on pace to have even one of uh, even more monster of a season, and it was still in any case his best offensive season overall. So I have really no idea what's going on there, um, but I do think that with Javier Baez, I don't think uh, what was it a one ten uh, yeah OPS plus. Um, I don't think that that's. a crazy projection um i think he'll beat it i'm pretty confident that he will but last year by way to runs created plus he was 114 his obp plummeted his strikeout rate ticked up a little bit his walk rate improved also but 
he's all and 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 although he's a guy who's been very consistent with his BABIP, um, it's consistently very high and thus subject to a little bit more variability if things don't break his way early on or if he loses a step in terms of speed. Now, with all that said, I will take the over on 110 any day of the week, but I don't think that Javier Baez has the consistency that Wilson Contreras has even shown yet um, over the course of his career because until literally 2018, he was technically a below average overall offensive contributor. So for a a conservative projection system to say that he's going to be uh, 10% better than league average after only doing it for two years. Well, you know, I kind of understand that, but it also doesn't really matter because Javier Baez at 10% better than league average offensive production with his defensive shortstop is a supremely valuable player. And that's not to say all the other ways he can impact the game. So I'm not really concerned about his projection. I just definitely would take the over. That's, that's my main thinking on that one. Yeah, Javi's a little bit like Kyle Hendricks and that the projection systems don't know what to do with him. Um, he he has all these weird like statistical anomalies that other players don't have. My personal favorite is that his he's like one of the only players in baseball that whose outcomes improve with two strikes tremendously. He's like an outstanding two strike hitter. <laughs> It's like, how did that happen? That's not supposed that's, to happen, right? <laughs> that's not a thing. Like, you're supposed to be a worse hitter with two strikes. And for whatever reason, Javier Baez is an outstanding hitter with two strikes. Um, he's also, like, completely changed the way he approaches certain pitches. And as a result, has been, like, just murdering, like, first pitch strikes. I think curveballs. I could be wrong about that. Um, but anyway, so if you watch Javi, you know that he kind of defies the rules of the game and he defies the rules of stats too, which is another reason to be optimistic about these projections, I would say. Um, yeah. And just to confirm, yeah, it is curveballs. I mean, over the last two years alone, he's had some of the best, uh, some of his best work overall has come against curveballs, which I don't think a lot of people would have guessed. Um, especially because in 2018, he was crushing fastballs, but then last year it took a little bit of a step backwards, but he continues to hit curveballs as good as anybody. Outstanding. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about a couple of players who maybe we haven't talked about yet. Craig Kimbrell. We're finally mm-hmm. going to have him for a full season. We're going to get to see him go through a spring training workout. Uh, both of these systems really predict an outstanding rebound for Craig Kimbrell, which considering he was not great in the closing role mm-hmm. in 2019. I'm trying to keep this. That was very generous of you. Yeah. Um, look, what do you, what are you thinking for Craig Kimbrell? I think if Craig Kimbrell comes out and has a 37% strikeout rate and a 127 ERA plus, the Cubs are going to win a lot more games than we all think they're going to right now. Um, that's, that's how good uh, th- these projections aren't peak Craig Kimbrell projections, but they're very good C- Craig Kimbrell projections. And if the Cubs, certified closer is uh dominating at that level they're going to turn over a lot of games to him and he will put them away soundly um he's got the experience to do it on top of the actual numbers that support that uh sort of performance and i think that if you could lock in that performance right now you would and the cubs would win more than the 85 or whatever games are projected by Dakota. well and so let's talk about this bullpen for a minute because i actually like what the cubs have done with their bullpen this year uh both of these projection systems like the Cubs bullpen more than they liked it last year. I think a lot of that has to do with, despite the fact you knew more of the names last year, those names were aging. They were going to have some issues. 
this year it's a bunch of guys you maybe haven't heard of, but they all have a lot of high upside. I've been trying to push the idea that like hashtag high upside should really be the Cubs motto this year because it's the yeah, whole thing they're going point. for right now. It's like if, if we all hit on the upside of these players, it's going to be a great season. And if they don't, well, it's going to be it's we're going to be trading some people in July. Um, yep. The. This bullpen has some really interesting possibilities in it. You've got the possibility that Dylan Maples learns control and becomes just an absolute elite setup guy. You've got the possibility that Rowan Wick is for real and is also a potentially elite setup guy. You've got the possibility that Brandon Morrow is finally not hurt and is also capable of being that eighth inning closer type guy. And then you've got the possibility none of that happens. Right. <laughs> Think of this bullpen. No, yeah. So I mean, I'll 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 phrase similarly with what you just said is in a slightly different way. The Cubs basically have three closers on the roster: Kimbrel, Morrow, and Jeffress. Now, obviously, Kimbrel's has to come back in a big way. The projections are supporting that. Brandon Morrow, the projections for him, although they were low on the inning total, which I think is correct, yes. um, the the numbers actually looked pretty good. They believe when he is out there, he will still have it, and that's factoring in the injuries and missed time. And then Jeremy Jeffress has been that guy in the past. And obviously Kimbrell is your going to be your closer, but those are three guys with that sort of pedigree that when they're healthy and when they're right, they are as good as a, the best reliever on any team. And then you have guys like Kyle Ryan, Rowan Wick and Brad Wick, who sort of all emerged at the end of last year, thanks to some work in the pitch lab. And if they can, you know, obviously bullpens are fickle. It's like, you know, might as well be a t-shirt. Um, all of that, they are so variable. But if those three guys are anywhere close to the guys they were last year, well, then all of a sudden you have five or six good arms ready to go for the late innings. That's not even talking about middle relievers or guys that just are there for mop-up duty or whatever else you need. Um, so, I, I mean, you nailed it. There's a ton of upside in this bullpen. It's just that the floor is also quite low. Right. I mean, and th thinking about those middle innings guys, we're actually talking about all of those guys as potential fifth starters too, right? So this is like your Alec Mills, Tyler Chatwood, maybe even Adbert Alzale. Uh, he looks pretty good. Um, yesterday they were showing some footage of him throwing as he got to training camp. I, I think there is a lot of potential in this bullpen, and I like the fact that they did it, with the exception of Kimbrell, they did it on not a lot of money, right? This is a base bargain basement bullpen plus an elite closer <laughs> yeah i know and you know what the only thing that uh, so i i can appreciate what they were able to piece together i do think that if this were any other year and they were willing to spend even a little bit there were some slightly better buy low uh candidates out there but you know the guys they ended up with they ended up with for a reason and at least part one uh or one part of the um the thinking or theory that I wasn't actually aware of that I was really happy to see, I think it was in a piece of the athletic was um, Tommy Hadovy explaining that some of the guys that they actually targeted this year were pitchers that were already fluent in uh, the methods and methodology and terminology of the pitch lab and, and of advanced metrics and were already more willing and open to that sort of change. And that's something I think that we sort of take for granted because we're still in an era where not every single pitcher is uh, or player for that matter is open to that sort of change and that, that sort of thinking. So to target those guys and in, in hopes of them having that, that, uh, that launch curve a little bit steeper, get to the top of their possible production a little sooner. Um, I'm happy with what they've done. I, I do think that there were some other options out there, but at the end of the day, it's like throwing darts with your eyes closed. You just got to hope that you hit something good. Um, and I think that they have plenty of options, plenty of darts to throw at least. 
Yeah, I, I think they have a bunch of darts. That's really interesting about targeting people who are fluent with the pitch lab and their methodology, because I, I know that once you get to a point where you're such an expert in your craft, it can be really difficult to unlearn those things. Uh, one more subject on projections before we take a quick break, and then we'll, we have a lot more to talk about on the flip side. But Pakoda does not hate the Cubs this year. Pakoda puts the Cubs at 85 wins and second to the Cincinnati Reds, which that Reds lineup looks outstanding. I was just watching um, Hot Stove and they had the Reds lineup projected with Nicholas Castellanos right there in the middle of it. It was kind of a dagger to the heart. Uh, <laughs> Dakota does hate the Cardinals this year. Yes, yeah, so, so do I. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I hate the Cardinals every year, but Dakota... <laughs> Dakota had a little bit of a love affair with the Cardinals last year, and that has dropped off a lot. They are projecting um, that the Cardinals really took a hit by not going after Ozuna, by trading some of their bats like Jose Martinez over to the Rays. They're not going to get Libertor in their rotation right away, and they're they're just not in love with the moves like bringing Adam Wainwright back. Um, are the Cardinals going to – take another back step backward step this year or take a step forward? What do you see? Well, so, I mean, I, God, I've been asked this question for like the last three years and every year the Cardinals continue to bet on Adam Rainwright and Yadier freaking Molina. I'm like, well, there's no way it's going to work again. And then it like does. And so I have my foot in my mouth constantly, but come on, there's no way it can work again. Right. Adam Wainwright <laughs> is so past his prime. Yadier Molina is so past his prime. I don't care about who they were. They are not those guys anymore. And the Cardinals, despite having a few good players spread out at a few good places, um, there's no doubt about that. They have some talent on the roster. Um, they didn't do much at all this offseason to improve, much like the Cubs. And they they decided against resigning some of the players that were on their team last year. So frankly, yeah, I can see them taking a step backwards. And I, and I also wouldn't be surprised, although I have been, like you said at the beginning of this podcast, more along the lines of the Cubs are either going to win 95 games or 75 games. Like I don't think they'll end up at 85. Um, I do. I could see a version of this division where the Brewers, Cardinals, Reds, and Cubs all have like 80% of a dominant team and thus steal a lot of wins from each other and, and sort of end up with like a big crowded group uh, all below 90 wins. Um, that's possible. And I could see that happening with the Cardinals being one of those teams. I mean, there's clearly talent there, but they clearly have holes. I think the same goes for the Reds. And I think the same goes for the Brewers. Um, the Pirates are the only team that are, have, are, are in them like a clear lane, which is they're not going to be good, you know? So I think that the other four teams in this division are going to beat up on each other all summer long. And if one just happens to have a little bit of better luck against one of the other teams, kind of like, you know, how the Reds crushed the Cubs in the past, um, then that can be the decider in the division by the end of the year. So, yeah, I mean, I'm so sick of the Cardinals. I'm so sick of hearing about Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina still. Oh, yeah, I want to keep playing. No, there's no way. You cannot keep doing it. And uh, <laughs> I get so frustrated. because like, this is literally the third year. I was like, no, this is it. They're done. They can't do it again. And they do. So got to give them some credit, but I don't, I don't buy it. I don't think they're going to be – I don't think they're going to win the division this year. Yeah, from, from your mouth to God's ears, I just can't deal with the Cardinals <laughs> winning the division right now. I totally agree with you that these projection systems see a really tight race in the NL Central. I think that is absolutely on point. The only team that looks like they're not trying right now is the Pirates. And all, the rest of these teams all look like they're sort of, they could be 80-win teams, they could be 90-win teams. It's going to be really interesting to see. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. 
on the flip side, we have a lot more to talk about. There was a press conference with Theo Epstein and David Ross yesterday in Arizona. Jason Kipnis, who who knew is from Chicago, is a Cub now. Um, sign ceiling fallout and more. So stick with us, but first a quick break. And we're back. So the Cubs opened spring training with press conference with Theo Epstein and David Ross in Arizona. What were your takeaways from this, Michael? Um, my The funniest takeaway is that um, Jed Hoyer was also there and seemingly nobody knows that because he said about one word throughout the entire conference. I mean, he was, he was, I, I guess when you got a brand like new that. manager and Theo Epstein sitting there, it's like, okay, let those guys speak. But it's funny. I mean, Jed Hoyer is sitting right there. He never, never got mentioned, never mentioned anything. Um, they were good. It was, it was good. I, I was a little confused. I mean, just a little bit of uh, nuts and bolts behind the scenes stuff. There was uh, an unusual lack of um, uh, available video. Usually it's like live streamed um, in some way or another, uh, either Periscope or on Facebook. And that wasn't really around. And even ESPN and 670, the score were only carrying um, parts of it. So I was even in and out as I was trying to switch between um, uh, mediums to continue catching it. But I mean, there was, there was a lot of good takeaways among, among chief among them was David Ross um, confirming that uh, Craig Kimbrell will be the closer, like to start the year. It's not going to be some sort of competition. He's the guy, which I think is smart. Keep him in that role. He also uh, opined that while there are several options for leadoff, Anthony Rizzo is a viable one to start the year. And I am very happy to hear that though, because Frankly, I think we all sort of forget about this. The end of last season when the Cubs were shuffling through leadoff options and couldn't find the guy to stick there and it was hurting Hayward when he was up there and then he was crushing it when he wasn't and it was hurting Kyle Schwarber up there but he was crushing it when he wasn't and you know Wilson Contreras tried it and Albert Almora wasn't hitting anybody and Ian Happ wasn't back yet and then Anthony Rizzo came up and he started leading off again and this time it wasn't a joke and he was killing it and the Cubs started winning and then he got hurt and it all got went away and we all forgot about it because so many other things happened since then, like losing the division and missing the playoffs and missing Joe Madden and uh, getting rid of Addison Russell. Like so much has happened since then that we forget that there was a point in time when Anthony Rizzo had consistently become like the capital T, the leadoff hitter of the team. And I think that it's wise to go back to that, at least to start the year, especially in the absence of an obvious solution, who's not only the right person to play that role, but who will also be playing every single day. Because that's another part of this is that you don't just want someone like, okay, yeah, Ian Happ can do it sometimes. Sure. Maybe, I don't know. Um, David Bodie, if he's starting or whatever, but if they're not going to be in the lineup every day, then you're still going to have to find other people to replace him. And you're losing that consistency that we're all searching for in the first place. So if Anthony Rizzo is open to it, which we know he is, if he's good at it, which we know he is, and if David Ross is open to it, I say absolutely start the year off with him as the leadoff hitter. I was very happy to see that being like the very first topic he addressed. So I also love this. And I, I wrote a tongue-in-cheek piece back in like 2017 when Rizzo let off for the first time. And it was like the whole joke of, oh, he's the greatest leadoff hitter of all time. All he does is hit leadoff home runs. And we all kind of thought it was funny. But I, I took a look at, you know, leadoff hitters, who's been great, what actual stereotypes exist. Everybody has this idea in their head. You got to have some on-base machine who's going to steal a lot of bases. And frankly, there aren't that many players who steal that many bases that more anyway. It's not a huge part of some players' arsenal. And so it just, it, it struck me 
that if you look at the people we consider great leadoff hitters throughout history, it's not always that like Ichiro stereotype. Like you have a Mm -hmm. lot of people in there like Wade Boggs or Paul Molitor or Alfonso Soriano that are quite different from that particular mold. And there's no reason that Rizzo can't be a great leadoff hitter just because he's slow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, like, was anybody stealing on the Cubs last year? Even Javi stole, no. like, 10 fewer bases. They just weren't stealing bases. And, like, the idea of, you know, Dusty Baker used to say, like, oh, they're clogging up the bases. That's, like, literally the exact goal. I want the bases to be as clogged as possible all the time. I mean, the amount of times that Javier Baez is going to be running behind Rizzo and can't score because Rizzo's too, that doesn't happen. He's got a 90 foot head start. He should be able to get to the next base, you know, in time. So I know that he might not go first to third as easily as Chris Bryan or somebody else that's faster, but Anthony Rizzo seems comfortable there. And if he can succeed there, you know, that's, that's ideal for the Cubs. They need someone to take that pressure off them. They need that narrative to be removed from the the uh, the ether because it, it, it hangs over their head a little bit too much. And frankly, with a brand new manager, um, that's a question that managers get all of the time. And I'd rather David Ross have one less thing to worry about when it doesn't actually probably matter as much as we all think it does in a macro sense. Obviously, individually, it could have an impact. But on a macro scale, he shouldn't be spending more, disproportionately more time figuring that out. So if Anthony Rizzo's up for it, do it. No question. Yeah. Totally agree. And the the other thing just that I'll just close with here, if you look at Cubs batters who had at least 200 plate appearances last year, Rizzo is the only person on the team who has an over 400 on base percentage. Like, yes, he also hits home runs, but he gets on base more than any person on the team. And he's the also the only person on the team who has demonstrated that whatever mental block exists with the leadoff spot, he doesn't have it. So mm-hmm. put the guy out there who doesn't have a mental block and gets on base. I think that's outstanding. Yep. Big agree. Um, um, you want me to, yeah. So, I mean, I guess other than that, um, there was the general sense that the Cubs um, from Theo Epstein, the, the Cubs had expected to do more this offseason than they ultimately had. Um, right. And that they were now sort of turning the page and otherwise hoping that um, the changes to the environment and the coaching staff and the um, entire back end of the Cubs with the pitch lab and the new director of hitting and all of that would sort of change things, which, you know, that's, that's a little bit of, um, it's not super promising to hear. However, um, we also know that it, at the same exact time, we've been hearing reports from multiple sources from different publications and different corners of the world, um, of the country, at least, uh, that the Cubs are still pretty active on the trade market and not just with Chris Bryant, but, um, more broadly with anybody on their roster. And I still expect that, uh, there will be some more action before uh, opening day. And frankly, uh, if they don't get under the luxury tax at this point, I think this would have been an enormous waste of an offseason and an enormous miscalculation because although they can unload some players at the deadline, putting yourself in that position with even less time uh, and less leverage to make a move because your needs are that much clearer, um, is a big problem. And then there's always the risk that they are, you know, on the bubble or contending already and have to sell pieces off because if they don't and they go over again because they're winning and want to stay in first place, well, then we're going to have one more off season where they can't spend any money because there already will have been repeat offenders. And then that would have been the third time this next coming off season, which makes the penalties even worse. So if the Cubs don't get something done before opening day, 
I actually think I'd be a little surprised, but um, it's because I'm, I'm again, I'm hoping they do strategically. But even if that's not the case, then they're just going to be in a bad position and have to still sell off at, at the trade deadline. I don't really want them to be there either. So a uh, little bit of wish casting, putting it out into the world, but I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that there's still one big move. And it seems to me that they're at least open to that, um, which is good. Yeah, I want to highlight something you said there, because I think a lot of people don't realize it. Like the Cubs not doing anything this summer didn't put them under the competitive balance tax. They're still about four or five million dollars over the CBT threshold that they were trying to get under. So they haven't reset it yet. They're just kind of sitting here. I I don't know, like hoping. Yeah, it's the worst of both worlds. It's terrible. So bad. They're like hoping they'll be able to make some move that will get us there. And I, I'm nervous about that too, because I don't know what that looks like. It's going to be really weird to see them trying to figure out how to be competitive and shed salary. And I, that's not a great place to be in. Um, the other move that the Cubs made yesterday outside of the presser was this Jason Kipnis move, which this has been rumored for a while. So I don't think that anybody is shocked by this. Uh, signed to a minor league deal, just like 99% of the other contracts that the Cubs had this year. I mean, sure, why not? Let's see if Jason Kipnis has anything left. I don't love it. I don't hate it. It just kind of is for me. Yeah, you know, I have this working theory that's going to sound condescending to Cubs Twitter, but they uh, condescend to me all the time. So buckle <laughs> up. <laughs> no. um, basically, I'm pretty certain that most people's baseball attention maxed out or peaked in the 2016 season when the Cubs were winning the World Series for obvious reasons. And so much of that extended well beyond the Cubs to other players and other teams like Jason Kipnis, for example, who had one of his best seasons in the majors, 4.7 war, 114 weighted runs graded plus, you know, big factor in the World Series. And he's not that guy anymore and hasn't been for three years. So while I am neither, I'm also, I agree with you. It's like this move is, yeah, it's a smart move to make. He plays good defense. He hits left-handed. It was a minor league deal. So there's literally no risk. He's a veteran. He can provide a stabilizing presence and force. And all of that is great. Fantastic. But he's not Jason Kipnis. That's not who he is anymore. And expecting anything close to that out of him is ignoring the last three full seasons of, you know, like, 15 to 20% below the league average offensive production. That's not great. That doesn't mean he can't still be valuable, especially if he's sort of utilized um, in a platoon, a pretty strict platoon role. But the other problem with that sort of is that while Kipnis hits righties better than lefties, which is expected for a left-handed hitter, um, someone who he might presumably share some time with at second base, David Bodie, also hit righties better than lefties last year by a pretty significant margin. So you know, it's I, I, I like having him around, but I don't see this as I think Cubs fans were disproportionately excited for his signing. And I don't I just don't think they should be, even though, again, it's great. And there's literally no risk. There's nothing to be but fine about it. But that's where I land, too. Yeah, I sort of think of him as like an upgrade to the Addison Russell part of the second base platoon in more ways than one, like as a good person and also as a better baseball player. But as a downgrade from like the Ben Zobris part of that platoon, and it's sort of like you still have four guys who are going to be vying for that second base spot uh, who will be playing on any given day. So it's like, is it David Bodie? Is it going to be Jason Kipnis? Is it going to be Daniel Descalso? Is Nico going to actually get a shot to just like have the position outright and own it? Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see, but I, I feel like the Kipnis move is sort of, it's a lateral move, right? Like it doesn't, if he's good, that's great. And if he's what we think he is, he's probably not going to play very much. It'll be sort of like a a cargo situation from last year. 
Exactly. And like, so that's why at the beginning of the year, so I don't think Nico Horner should start the year off in the majors. And I know a lot of people disagree, but it's pretty clear to me. And I think the zips projections sort of reinforce that the power is just not there yet. His context is too high. He's kind of got the Albert Almora Starlin Castro issue, not to that extreme (laughs) yet. Hopefully not. I mean, he's so young, so inexperienced, has so much time to improve that, but he hasn't even played in triple a. And if you're going to have a 125 ISO in the big leagues, I mean, it's just not going to work. So he needs to go to AAA. That's all fine. I think he's going to be awesome. I think he's the second baseman of the future. But that's also why at the beginning of the offseason, I knew the Cubs are going to make a move like this at second base. I was pushing for Didi Gregorius or uh, Scooter Jeanette because at least at a minimum, those guys have more recently had bigger monster seasons and have a little bit of upside uh, remaining that's probably a little bit more reachable than it ever will be again for Jason Kipnis. So that's why I, I had pushed for them. Didi ended up getting a lot more money than I thought. The Cubs were connected to Scooter, but also ultimately they went with Kipnis. And you have to imagine that at least part of that is because he was willing to accept a minor league deal, which brings us back to the fact that they put themselves in a position to still be $5 million or whatever over the luxury tax payroll while pitchers and catchers have already reported. The options they have are more limited regardless of their preferences. And that's not a great spot to be in. They might have preferred a different player for a reasonable amount of money and could not get him because of the spot they found themselves in. So it's kind of been a fumble of an offseason. It's possible they're still good, and that's all well and fine. But if they don't get under the luxury tax and they didn't add this offseason, well, then this was all a giant mistake. Totally. Uh, One other player I want to ask you about, because I know you have strong feelings here, who's in that same type of conversation of how much playing time, what position. Ian Happ is going to be the MVP. (laughs) Was that who it was? Yes, of course it was Ian Happ. (laughs) I, I... I don't even know. I I can't even like, it's almost become like a joke to me. So a little part of me is like having fun playing the character of the Ian Happ hype man on Twitter, but also he's just literally always been good. And I don't have any understanding why he does not receive any semblance of respect for the 127 rated runs created plus he put up last year or his career 112 or the fact that he's a switch hitter with speed who could play center second or all three outfield positions in a pinch. Um, I mean, it's he's a good player. He's so young. He's so inexperienced. People forget that he wasn't even on the World Series team. He was he was just being drafted that year, and then he debuted or a year earlier, and then he debuted a year after that. I mean, he's got almost no time. The Cubs rushed him to the majors because they needed him. Joe Madden never seemed really to like to use him in the way that he should be used. And every time he was out there, especially at the end of last season, when he ended the year as the NL player of the week, which another thing that people sort of overlook, um, he showed the promise and changes and, and adjustments in minor, in the minor leagues throughout the course of the year that manifested into sustainable production in the big leagues. I have extremely high hopes for Ian Happ, but also those are those high hopes are just relative to the overall uh, promising overall offensive and defensive performance that he's already produced on the field in the first two and a half years of his career. I think he's going to be a big factor for the Cubs, and if he finds a way to sneak into the lineup more often than not um, and gets a little bit more consistent playing time, uh, he is going to show that pretty quickly. I, I firmly believe that. Yeah, I'm with you. I think Hap should be the opening day center fielder and you put Jason Hayward back in right where he's an, a gold glover as opposed to like just an above average outfielder and center. Um, Ian Hap is interesting to me. So I understood why the Cubs had him in spring training initially last season. The strikeout rate in 2018 was so incredibly high. 
And there were times where he just looked a little mystified at the plate in 2018. But I didn't understand why he stayed there until like, what was it? August, September? It was so late. And the Cubs clearly needed help. And I was like, why? <laughs> why is Ian Happ still in AAA? I don't understand. So I'm, I'm really curious to see what he can do. I hope they keep him out of the leadoff spot, at least initially. I don't want yeah, any of that clouding his numbers. I want to see what Ian Happ can do with us, you know, playing four or five days a week, regular time in the lineup. And I, I agree with you. The bat plays, the glove plays. I mean, he's, he's, he's a better option than Albert Elmore Jr. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, and that's another thing that those two, their, their, their fates have been inexplicably linked. And the, the fact of the matter is Albert Elmore is like, was like almost, you know what? I bet you it is, but probably almost literally uh, half the offensive contributor of half last season. I mean, half. Albert Amora was one of the worst hitters in baseball. And for some uh, reason. Right, actually, I have it up because I had it up for the on-base percentage question when we had Rizzo earlier. So mm-hmm. I was run, yeah, weighted runs created plus. Ian Happ, as you already said, was at 127. Is that right? Or 124? Yeah, 127 last year. Albert Almora Jr. was at 64. Okay, look, that's almost exactly half. I, that was a rough estimate. But you see what I'm saying? And 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 if for a while we were saying, well, well Albert Almora Jr. has got like a gold glove caliber uh, glove in center field. But first of all, that's sort of drifted off, um, especially lately. And on top of that, Albert, uh, Ian Happ can play center field. But he's probably about average there. And he hasn't had that many reps or chances to improve. And at the same time, in left or right field, I think he's above average defender. So he's a guy that has a ton of power, a ton of on-base skills. He cut his strikeout rate down to 25% last year, If and his walk rate was still high. Um, his BABIP was reasonable, and he hit really well. And if you can have that guy in the lineup and under control for four and a half or five and a half more seasons, and he's only 25, Cubs fans should be so excited about a guy like that, especially in a year like this where there's so many other questions around the field, um, not in the infield, but at least in the outfield. There's, there's space and right and center for someone to take over. Why not a young guy you have under control for a while who's shown nothing but promise? He's not perfect. If, if he was perfect, he would be a surefire all-star, and we would know that. But he's got as much promise and, and reachable upside as anybody on the team that is in a questionable position. So I don't get I, – I just really don't get why there's not more excitement over him. I think he's going to have a huge year, and I, and I would bet any money on it. I think, he, I think he's going to have a great season. Well, if Ian Happ shows up the way he did at the end of last season, that almost is like a trade, right? Because you're getting a full season of a guy who's not quite what you got from Nicholas Castellanos, but pretty close. No, Um, right. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I guess I'll also just add quickly that I got a chance to talk to him when I did my podcast for about a minute. And (laughs) uh, he did confirm to me that while he was in the minors, he was working on individual things for eight to 10 game periods at a time. So about two weeks where it's like, during these two weeks, I'm only working on this thing. I'm not trying to produce as much as I possibly can. I'm just trying to fix uh, fastballs in the upper third of the zone or whatever it is. And then there was times when he would go back and try to produce, and then he would switch and work on something else. And it alternated like that. And if you look at the stats, I did an article on this last year. They followed him along that path. It was like every eight to 12 games, something changed. And then at the end of the year, right before he was called up, he told me that he finally said, okay, now, with all of these in mind, I'm going to put everything together and just try to produce as much as I can. And he did, and he produced a ton. He got called up, and he hit well. So that's why, I mean, it's like when the narrative and the actual 
changes behind the scenes match the production on the field and the scouting reports and pedigree of a first round pick, a top 10 overall guy, that's why I'm excited about him. I mean, it all finally came together and he's still so young. Yeah, I'm super stoked to see what Ian Happ can do in a full season. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if he could bring that strikeout rate down even a little bit more. I mean, he improved it at, like tremendously. I think it was 40% to 25% is what I remember um, over the course of his work in AAA last year. So mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing what Ian Happ has in store for us in 2020. Um, some former Cubs news really fast before we finish up with the sign-stealing scandal and the stuff that's broken there this week. Uh, Cole Hamels, as of today, is going to open camp on the injured list. He has a shoulder injury, and they're going to reevaluate it in three weeks. That sounds absolutely terrible to me for a pitcher who's in his late 30s who apparently hurt his shoulder with a medicine ball. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the Braves – So. That the Braves are going to be frustrated by that or upset by that. Cole Hamels was not an not an insignificant part of their offseason. And he is also the sort of guy that, if healthy, you sort of count on and bank on being more effective. Like we saw last year, especially in the first half, he was on track to be an all-star um, before he got hurt and struggled and then pitched through some pain. And uh, if that's so, if they're counting on this guy to be healthy because they think he's healthy when he signs, and you can can consistently count on him being extremely effective when he's healthy, you can see the drop off uh, in their expectations there. But at the same time, the Braves um, have some of the most impressive starting depth in baseball right now. In my opinion, they have almost eight. Yeah, they have eight guys that you're kind of comfortable with putting in the top five of a rotation and Cole Hamels was already near the end of that. And with the prospects they have on the bubble of double AA, a triple A and majors, I think they should be able to backfill with him backfill for him. Just fine. Um, unless they trade those guys to the Cubs for Chris Bryant beforehand. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, they're, they're not. Trade. Honestly, God, the Braves are my favorite trade partner for the Cubs for Chris Bryant. The nationals are second. I have packages mm-hmm. for both those teams and I'm like this would work <laughs> yeah no kidding and it's like unless the Dodgers are going to give you Lux or the Angels will give you Adele it's the the Nationals and uh the Braves oh man dream partners in a lot of ways <laughs> but yeah I mean the, I think the I think Cole Hamels I think this is uh probably a little vindicating for the Cubs who are some fans are probably like why wouldn't you bring Cole Hamels back I wouldn't have um not because of this I just I think that the risk would have outweighed the reward and you still want to see if you can get someone like Tyler Chatwood to show some productivity even if before the deadline if that becomes the escape valve the Cubs need or if someone like Edward Elzelai or Alec Mills can be a long-term option and you need to have space to do that so the fact that he's injured is a bummer I feel very bad for him um I don't feel bad for the Braves because they have plenty of depth but you know it, it, it's it's what happens every single year and honestly Cubs fans should probably brace themselves for the fact that one of their pitchers uh in the next three weeks is going to say, you know what? I got a little bit of dead arm or I'm not throwing well, or my elbow hurts. I mean, it happens every single year. And when you're an older guy, it's just a little bit more common. Yeah. Injuries are going to happen and we all, it's a long season. So you just kind of have to keep a level head about it. Um, One of the interesting things with the Braves and Pakoda projections, and this is not a Braves podcast, so we'll move on after this. Um, <laughs> but they have the Braves projected as a third place finishing team behind the Mets. And I was really surprised by that. That did not seem like what I would expect. <laughs> no, I, I sent it to my, I sent it to our uh, Bleacher Nation group chat this morning. I was like, this, and I literally, all I said was I sent the projections and just said, this looks wrong. 
Like I thought it was a different year or something. It didn't make any sense to me. I don't see the Braves as an 83 win team or whatever. Yeah, I'm not sure what Pakoda's angry about with the Braves. They're not a particularly old team. They have some really, really great offensive players and some depth. It was that was a really, really surprising to me. It was also surprising to me because I just the Mets are the Mets, man. Like I Yeah. I'm never gonna project the Mets to win. There should be an algorithm that's just like, and here's the Mets minus five wins. Just <laughs> exactly. somebody's gonna like start a fight with a reporter in the middle of a series at Wrigley and we're gonna lose three games. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I thought that that was pretty strange. Um, I guess maybe they have maybe the Braves have a little bit of the uh 2019 Cubs Pakota, you know, bad juju where they were just there's something about them they don't like there's something about the system that doesn't equate well and project well and that's that i mean i really have no idea i'd have to dig in further but i cannot imagine that that division is going to go mets nationals braves with 88 to 83 wins from top to bottom i I don't see that right um you mentioned tyler chatwood in there too was it you that posted tyler chatwood's uh stat cast profile earlier this week on Twitter was that somebody else because Tyler Chatwood actually his stuff projects so well Mm -hmm. and if he can be that guy he's not a number five starter he's like a number three or number two he might be better than Jose Quintana oh yeah I mean there's no question that that's 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 sort of in a lot of ways that's sort of how I feel about Ian Happ is that um, and I'll keep this about Chatwood because it's the same same point is that some of these guys have the pieces to be to, to be light years better than some of the other players that right now they're producing the same amount as. And Tyler Chatwood is certainly one of those people. Um, I plan to write an article literally after we get off the the phone for this interview um, about Tyler Chatwood because I've noticed a lot of things about him at the end of last season that trended in the right direction. Obviously, his performance was just better, and some of that is going to be um, dependent on, upon the fact that he was in the bullpen a lot of the time, but I saw that he used his sinker a lot more and the velocity was a lot higher. His soft hit rate went, was going down throughout the course of the, or was going up throughout the course of the year. His hard hit rate was going down. People were swinging at pitches out of the zone more often. They were swinging and missing more often. His walk rate plummeted and his strikeout rate rose. And at a certain point, you could say like, well, his ground ball rate went down a little bit, but that's not that much against, that's not that much in the other hand balancing out of all the good. So if Tyler Chatwood is even anywhere close to the guy he was last season, and hopefully that's in the rotation in my opinion, but even if he has to be a swing man or pitches out of the bullpen, the Cubs are going to have another pitcher that they can rely on more consistently and in higher leverage situations that they didn't really fully utilize last year, and that could be a huge boon to the overall projections. Awesome. Can't wait to read that piece. Uh, let's just finish this up with some like overarching baseball news with the sign-stealing scandal and fallout. We still don't know what's going on with the Red Sox investigation and what type of punishment Alex Cora will face. I'm sure that will come out sometime during spring training, but there were two really interesting pieces of news this week that I wanted to hit on. One is uh, Mike Bolsinger, who is a former Blue Jays pitcher is suing the Astros (laughs) for messing up his career. And I am fascinated by this because I think there are probably at least a dozen guys out there who could make a case that they were called up and missed their chance or their chance was irrevocably altered by pitching against the Astros during this stretch. And I wanted to get your thoughts on this lawsuit. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think that he has a particularly strong case to win um, because he was already 
pitching pretty poorly before he ever met the Astros and you know, whatever. But with that said, yeah, with that said, I am very happy that he did bring this up because as we talked about earlier, there were plenty of players that were directly impacted, probably none better than you Darvish who would 100% have gotten more money if he continued dominating in the postseason against the Astros as he had before facing them than he did when they were cheating and stealing signs with electronic signals and trash banging uh, trash can bangs throughout every single at bat. And they blew him up and cost him money in the postseason, um, without a doubt in the off season. And the Cubs wouldn't have gotten him for 126 million. It probably would have cost 150 or something. So that's a direct example. And if Bolsinger is causing more attention to be brought to facts like that, I'm happy about it. I'm also happy about the fact that part of the, Part of the lawsuit included something along the lines of like the 30 or so million dollars in bonuses the Astros received from winning the World Series should be donated to charity. Like, yes, that means that that shows more of the right intentions and the right motivations. And most of all, you know, the Astros deserve as much heat as possible and they deserve to have other players. The league deserves to have other players stand up and show and admit and, and, and agree and say that it's OK to stand up and say this really wasn't right. This isn't the same thing. As you know, just the guy on second base looking over at the catcher and seeing, you know, that there's a fastball coming. This was a systemic from top to bottom, from front office to the manager to the players, um, to veterans like Carlos Beltran, stealing signs and doing things with malintent. They knew what they were doing were wrong. They did it anyway. They didn't care how it affected anybody else. They just tried to win. And that's pretty disgusting to me. And I think that any lawsuit that is supporting that narrative uh, is fine because um, I, while I, again, while I don't think he's going to win, it's the it's the right motivations, right intentions, and uh, you know, hopefully for him, right outcome. I just I don't see him winning. Yeah, I think that would be really hard to prove, particularly for these pitchers. And the pitchers who were most affected were kind of these marginal guys, right? Like you, Darvish is an exception to that. But a lot of these marginal people who got their one shot against the Astros or they started tweak, trying to tweak their mechanics after getting like just hammered during an Astros start, those are the guys who have probably the most direct impact, but it'll still be really hard to prove because they were never lights out pitchers in the first place. You said something really interesting uh, there that I wanted to touch on a little bit, which is this Carlos Beltran piece and him really being the ringleader of this whole thing. That was the second piece of news that came out with the sign stealing scandal this week in the athletic Ken Rosenthal, uh, Evan Drellich and Mark Carrig have a piece sort of detailing how the sign stealing started and that it was really Beltran after they traded for him, who was the ringleader here, I thought this was fascinating for two reasons. One is that Beltran came from the Yankees. The Yankees were also implicated in earlier seasons, not in the electronic sign ceiling after the memo went out in 2017 or 2018. But in earlier seasons, the Yankees had had concerns about them. It really feels to me like a lot of what the Astros have been saying. And look, I, I am not an Astros apologist. But some of what they have been saying does ring sort of true to me that this is a more pervasive problem than just the Astros and the Red Sox. And that if MLB were to really investigate every single team, they would find more than they want to find. And I'm curious about Beltran's role here. I'm also really interested in how much heat Beltran and Cora are going to take for this because neither of them has been punished yet, right? I mean, they lost their jobs. Well, they lost their jobs. MLB hasn't actually said this player should be punished in this way. I guess in Beltran's place, they said, we're not going to punish any players. So Beltran is probably in the clear from MLB. Yeah. But Cora is not. Well, uh, the thing that I was 
most frustrated by uh, reading the athletic piece was the fact that Beltran sort of used his position and stature, uh, you know, politically in the game to sort of uh, talk over both literally and figuratively any opposing voices um, that were saying, hey, this is not that cool. And to an extent, I can understand how that, you know, for guys like um, Alex Bregman, who was a rookie or in his second year or something close to that, he's a younger player in the league, how you look at a you know potential future Hall of Famer and say, hey, don't do that. That's wrong. You know, I get that. But there was other older guys in the team and there was a manager and they all knew. And now they're all coming out and saying like, oh, well, we didn't want to do it. But, you know, Carlos Beltran was Right. You know, he's as big. It's like that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. It's it's both bad on Beltron for being that guy, and he already has. You know, he's fortunate enough to have banked uh, tons of earnings and a massively popular and successful career. And now he's gonna just you know go scorched earth. Well, the rest of the players still have to be here and pick up your pieces when you're gone and sitting on a beach and retired and don't care about baseball anymore. And you're ruining their futures and their careers. But at the same time, you have to be responsible for yourself. And these players. Maybe even if you eliminate the 5% of them that were young or rookies or first or second year players, there's still a ton of guys that were established big leaguers, uh, coaches, and managers. And you know what? They all wanted to do it because if they didn't, they wouldn't have done it. And they would have said something and they would have handled it internally, maybe only, but they would have handled it. And instead, they just went along with it. So when I see those anonymous quotes that say something along the lines of, no, everybody loved hitting with the quote unquote system, like it's (laughs) a system, um, I believe them because. I think that now everyone's doing a lot of, you know, rewriting of history and Beltran was wrong to do what he did, like the most wrong out of anybody, but these players aren't off the hook. And also I find it pretty interesting that the league, I mean, obviously they just don't want to find anything else. I think it's pretty obvious that other teams are involved in this. And I also think, do we all just think that the Astros stopped doing this after 2017 or even after 2018? No, of course not. Of course they did. Of course they kept doing it. They didn't get caught yet. And so it's just sort of, it's a little disappointing because while I think that some of the punishments started off on the right track, um, they, the league just stopped short. And it's one of those things that there was so much momentum working in the league's favor to dole out big, heavy handed punishments to anybody they saw fit. And they wouldn't have had a lot of public blowback. I don't think they would have. And instead they just elected to protect their own like they do most of the time. And uh, I think, you know, this will either go one of two ways. Things will continue to leak out uh, and we'll find out some new information about some other teams or other players, uh, possibly from the past, um, or it's going to get swept under the rug entirely. I don't think there's going to be a lot of new people caught. I think people have sort of gotten the memo that this is going to be a little bit, if you ever get caught again, in other words, it's going to be a little bit more strict um, than it ever has been before, but it's, it's ridiculous that we're even to that point already. Yeah, and I, I will just say the only two players that I've them like seemed sad and like we shouldn't have done this. Marwin Gonzalez had an apology that came out today, and admittedly, Marwin Gonzalez probably benefited from sign stealing more than any player if you look at his numbers. So uh, there, there's that. But his apology sounded sincere to me. Uh, mm-hmm. AJ Hinch in his interview with Tom Verducci. I mean, th- you, there are problems with that interview, but. He did seem genuinely sorry and like he wishes he would have done more. Some of these other guys, man, I, I used to love Alex Bregman and I just, I don't know that I'll ever be able to look at that dude the same way again. He is so sullen and so incapable of apologizing for something that was clearly wrong. 
Yeah, and how about like, Jose Altuve going from like the most lovable player in the whole game? Broke my heart. I mean, it's 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 a bummer. And and you know, I agree with you about Hinch, but at the same time, saying like he said something along the lines of like, well, I didn't have as much confidence back then. You are the MLB manager of the World Series winning Houston Astros, and you couldn't speak up against one of your players, then you didn't deserve to be the manager, man. That's exactly the point. You didn't have the confidence. Well, that is a problem, and you should have. Like, apologize for that then. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Right. I, I, I agree. Um, I thought Marwin, and again, like you said, Marwin Gonzalez's apology was good, and it was good to see someone finally coming out and saying something, but it's like, I don't know. You still did it. It's like, that's just right. that's just bringing us back to neutral. That's not making it better. Well, and he did it and then got a nice big contract from the twins because he posted right. a career best like WRC plus of 117 or 122 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Immediately I mean, we, we wanted the Cubs to get him, remember? I, mean, I, we were, I literally wrote that article. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I mean, that's that's uh, the problem. It's a bummer. And then if the Cubs had signed him, they wouldn't have paid someone else. And that guy wouldn't have gotten a job. I mean, it's just it's they hurt so many of their fellow players. So all of this nonsense about keeping it in house or, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's all, it's all dumb and it's all bad. And I am uh, happy to see that they were caught. I, I kind of wish more people were caught. I was very happy to see that Anthony Rizzo explicitly came out and said the Cubs do not do that. Um, and they won't do it because I think if there's anybody on the team that could speak for everybody, it's him. And I don't think anyone would go around him to do anything like that. Now, you know, it was nerve wracking for a little while. Cause it was like, what if the Cubs do do this? I'm not going to stick up for them. This is bad. But Rizzo I mean, I said they don't. So. I know. Particularly given like some of the home road stuff that was so weird last year. I was like, oh, please, God, I can't take this. And I I agree. I was very happy to see Anthony Rizzo come out, voice of the team, team captain, just we didn't do this and we wouldn't. Yep. He's our guy. I love that guy. Hope he stays here forever. Yeah. Cup for life, Theo. Get it done. Um, I think that's a pretty good place for us to call it for this episode. I want to thank Michael Sarami for joining us to look ahead at these projected numbers for the Cubs. We're going to have some real baseball here uh, within the next 11 days, some spring training games that we can watch, which I am super excited about. Michael, where can people find you on the internet if they want to follow your stuff? Uh, mostly TikTok. TikTok? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, that's new no. for this program. <laughs> uh, uh, TikTok it is silly. I just like to have fun there. Um <laughs> On Twitter at Michael underscore Cerami is the primary place you could find me. Um, otherwise, all of my written stuff is at BleacherNation.com. Awesome. Uh, well, we appreciate you being here with us at, at Cup of Cubby Blue today. Uh, as always, you can find me at, at BCB Sarah underscore Sarah. Andy will be back next week, and you can find her at, at BRYZ underscore Blue. Uh, you can find both of us at, at Cup of Cubby Blue. And we are looking forward to some Cubs baseball now that pitchers and catchers have finally reported. Welcome back, Cubs. We missed you. Bye.